You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. I'm Peter. Welcome. It's nice to be live in person again after such a long time. As always, we'd like to acknowledge we are on Ramatishaloni land. I want to pay some respects to those who came before us as stewards. Always do that at the beginning of these things. So um, one of the great pleasures of this job is being able to read advanced copies of books. And almost immediately you get excited when you see something that you know is pretty hot. And this happens quite a bit. This last season has been like at least three or four books just like that, that we got to see in advance maybe a year ago or longer. And uh, Jonathan Scoffrey's book was one of those books where you just kind of, it's like Christmas. You know, you, you, you open the PDF and you're scrolling through and where they send you actually, you know, big, thick wad of copied text, which I love. I actually love those big wads of like a ream of paper. And this is a tradition here at City Lights, going all the way back to the beginning, to when Lawrence Ferlinghetti greeted Allen Ginsberg and asked for you know, permission to publish Howl. Uh, one of the great pleasures as well is being able to welcome up-and-coming authors at the beginning of their publishing career. So um, Jonathan Escoffrey is a recipient of the 2020 Plimpton Prize for Fiction. He's a 2020 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow and also a 2020 ASME uh, Award winner of fiction. His writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Ziziva, Agni, Passages, uh, amongst other amazing journals. Uh, his work has been anthologized in the Best American Magazine Writing. In 2021, he was awarded the Wallace Stegner Fellowship in the Creative Writing Program at Stanford. So, um, If I Survive You is his debut fiction collection. And a lovely, lovely tome it is. I encourage all of you, please, you may purchase it at the front counter. He is happy to sign it for you afterwards. With us tonight, joining him, is Johanka Delgado. Johanka is a 2021-2023 Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford and a 2022 National Endowment for the Arts recipient. Her fiction has appeared in the O. Henry Prize Stories of 2022, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy of 21, The Paris Review, and many other places. Her essays have appeared in Time Magazine, The Believer, New York Times Magazine, and more. She's a fiction editor at Barrel House, a 2021 emerging critic at the National Book Critics Circle, and a member of the inaugural Periplus Collective Mentorship Program. So, welcome to you both. Thank you for that that introduction, um, Pete. Uh, I I wanted to start off by um, reading just uh, a bit from the book. Uh, thank you all for joining us in in this historic alley, which really is it's, it's gorgeous out here, but there might be a little like bit of a wind chill so I'm especially uh, grateful for for all of you showing up and coming out tonight and I'm really um, grateful for Johanka kind of helping with the conversation which uh, I can't wait to get into but um, I thought so given that the book still still isn't quite I guess it's a month old today um, in terms of coming out um, but I still have no expectation that anyone has actually read the book outside of Pete, Johanka, and, 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 and me. So I'm going to read from a part of the book that I've never read from before. If anybody was at my Babylon Salon um, reading my, my, my part in that wonderful lineup, I know at least one person <laughs> was at that reading. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of um, move the, the narrative of, of what's going on in the book forward from, from there, which I know means nothing to a lot of you, but it should um, 
become a little bit clearer as I, as I begin to set this up and as I begin to read. I'm reading from the title story, which actually closes out the book, but I don't think I'm really giving away too much about the book. In the story, the father... So I'm reading from Trelawney, who's kind of my hero of uh, If I Survive You. I'm reading from his point of view. Uh, but in this story, his father, Topper, is hoping that one of his two sons is going to be able to uh, buy a house that he owns. It's the townhouse that the family, that the two brothers really grew up in, in Cutler Bay, um, which is a part of Miami, Florida. And he wants them to buy it for not a whole lot of money, but the house is also sinking. Uh, into the hill that it sits on and so there are definite problems with the house and the brother who he's um, He's failed the older brother Delano has failed as a, an arborist, but he's planted a bunch of Mango trees and palm trees and ackee trees into the front yard as his kind of last gesture towards um, his failed business and Trelawney's kind of mad about that. He's mad the house is sinking. He's mad that his older brother was the favorite son. He's mad at his dad. He's kind of angry, but he is also trying to prove that his dad has bet on the wrong child and that he can um, out, he can best his brother. And so again, Topper wants both sons to kind of buy the house, but he's willing to let one or the other buy the house. And so we're following Trelawney along his journey of, of trying to be the one who gets to buy this house. And um, because he's desperate for the money to, to get this thing worked out, he's gone onto Craigslist and he was looking for, he's a teacher, he's an English teacher, he was looking for English tutoring jobs and he does not find that. And what he finds instead is that there is a couple who describes themselves as an attractive, um, a couple of attractive white young professionals who are looking for a black man to show up and watch them have sex and he has already shown up for one of these sessions and watched them in bed. Um, and so where I'm going to pick up is where uh, it's, it's kind of right after that. And um, hopefully it winds up making sense, but it's a little strange. I, I, do, I do admit that <laughs> to you all. <laughs> when Morgan texts, can you come over now? It's been three days since your visit to their freak show. It's early afternoon, a Thursday. You didn't think you would hear from them again, not after flitting from their bedroom of breath after Tim ejaculated onto their rug. You weren't altogether sure that they'd seen you, but Morgan writes, can you wear baggier clothes? Do you own a hoodie? You write, this is a little short notice, folks. Busy week ahead. And hit send before pulling the covers back over your face. You're technically off till January, but this, you declare, is a mental health day. There will be no scanning of Craigslist for harebrained schemes, no lying to Jelly, sorry, Jelly is the living girlfriend of, of Jelani. No lying to Jelly, who is out Christmas shopping with her mother. There will be no run-ins with your madman brother, and there will be no answering of your father's phone calls. You can tell him tomorrow or the next day or whenever, definitively that you will not purchase this house. Your reply to Morgan feels like the end of it, so you exhale in relief. You're $11,398 short. You will not find the money now. Not before Jelly leaves you. Not before your father finds another buyer. There is safety in accepting defeat. Were you within reach of your target, there is no telling how you might destroy yourself to hit it. But Morgan responds, we'll bump you up to 300 this time, even though last time you discovered on returning to your SUV that they put $300 in your, your envelope, 100 more than you'd agreed on. You're certain this was no mistake. The ability to perform simple addition must be a requisite for the Appalachian finance people, whatever their jobs entail. You assume it's not a gratuity, but guilt money, since they so easily out-negotiated you, since they obviously exploited your need. Make it 500 and I'll drop what I'm doing, you write back. Morgan's text comes through immediately. Fine. And in all caps, but don't forget the hoodie. 
You wear the baggiest jeans you own, a pair earmarked for yard work, and bring along your university sweatshirt, the only hooded sweatshirt you did not hawk or toss after returning to this hot box city of sin back in 2009. You are not nostalgic for your college days, but you hope, even now, to one day romanticize your stint in the Midwest. You imagine telling your children and their children that you escaped Miami, if just for a short while, that you once inhabited a land so cold your hair froze while trekking to campus, a land where white semi-solids shat down from the sky as if from flocks of leviathan pigeons. You assume that should you survive long enough to become a grandfather or great-grandfather, you will outlive winter. You will outlive glaciers and polar bears and snow. And it occurs to you now, should you survive to see your progeny reproduce, you will outlive and thus need to explain Miami to these descendants who in your mind's eye split your features and jellies. As the city by then, like much of Port Royal and Atlantis before it, will have returned to the sea. It occurs to you that people like you, people who burn themselves up in pursuit of survival, rarely survive anything or anyone. Um, when, you, when Morgan opens her door, I'm skipping ahead just a little bit. When Morgan opens her door, she is in a bikini and a sarong. We're going up to the pool, she announces. I didn't bring swimwear, you say. That's all right, Morgan says. But she doesn't offer you a pair of Tim's trunks, and there are none to be borrowed from the pool deck's bar. From the parapet, you can see out to the yacht-studded bay, and for a moment you are struck by the aroma of the promise that Miami has dangled in front of you your entire life. You are a single lucky break from becoming one of the halves. Tim is swimming laps as you approach the pool. He waves briefly before continuing. Most of the pool's guests aren't concerned as much with exercise as with tanning and posing beside cocktails. Don't you people work, you say aloud. You can't all be teachers, all for winter break. You start to pull off your sweatshirt, but Morgan grabs your arm and says, what are you doing? It must be 95 degrees out. For what we're paying, I'm sure you can deal. Morgan moves in front of you and pulls down your sweatshirt's hem. She gazes at the university's crest. For the first time, you feel as though she's your boss, evaluating. I would have preferred something less academic, she says. But she's playful as she pulls the hood over your head. Put these on. It's a pair of Easy e era shades. She leads you past the cabanas to two tightly woven wicker chases in the deck's far corner. Morgan produces a blunt and a lighter from God knows where, sparks up, pulls, and puffs weed smoke in your face. Lady, you say, I told you I teach high school, right? Random drug tests mean anything to you? Relax, Morgan says. She takes another drag and blows clouds at you. You doubt if she's even inhaled. What's the idea here, Morgan? Look, she says, holding the blunt over your head using her free hand to waft smoke into your hoodie. Tim's had a rough week at work, so we need you to do something special for him. She drops the blunt through a grate near the chase, the smoke streaming up from the shallow case, the shallow catch beneath. The idea is you sit here and don't move till I get back. With that, Morgan removes her wrap and dives into the pool. There was a time when December brought relief from the swelter, but even Miami's shallow winter has begun arriving later in the season. As more pool guests crowd your end of the patio, you sit broiling in your sweatshirt and watch people sniff the air, examining you with suspicion or curiosity or outrage. You don't need to engage in whatever game Morgan is playing. Pull out your phone, begin browsing the internet, Type into your browser, why is my house sinking? The results show that any number of factors could be causing the house to sink, but the most compelling possibility is this. Surrounding trees may be stealing moisture from the soil near the house's foundation. You think of the jungle that your brother planted in your front yard. Of course Delano is responsible for this. 
A section at the bottom of one of the more useful web pages is titled Professional Help. It says, stabilizing a foundation with concrete or steel piers will cost one to $3,000 per pier. Christ, you say. You look up to see, staring down on you, a woman with wispy, silver-white hair and skin like thinly sliced suprasata. Um, and you say to her, and how are you doing today? Her knuckles bore into her hips, a superwoman pose. She has somehow materialized in your personal space and somehow, judging from her countenance, she feels empowered to stay there. Who are you here with, she says. You stare back through your tinted lenses, thinking, say nothing, say nothing, say nothing. But say, could you skip ahead to the intent behind your question? This elicits no response, so you rephrase, say more. This is a private pool. Emotion rocks her like a wooden roller coaster. As if her enslaved ancestors died erecting the platform this pool deck was built on. You're telling me you own this pool. The white threads of her eyebrows rise. You're saying all of these people are your invited guests. This pool is for residents and their guests. Superb, you say. Nice that two strangers can concur on such a divisive topic. You don't live here, she says. I'm on the board of directors for the association, so you'd have had to go through me. Congrats, you say. You're two for two. I do not reside here. Then I'll ask again, who are you here with? Who let you in? You point to the pool, but when you look over, Morgan and Tim are nowhere to be found. They're not at the bar. They're not by the cabanas. They were here a second ago, Morgan, Tim. You snatch Morgan's sarong off the ground and hold it up as if to say, see? Well, I don't know any Tim or any Morgan, and if they're not here now, you can't be. This game you are familiar with, and there is no competitive way to play, because the fact that it has begun means you have already lost. Morgan could round the corner and straighten this out, but that would only further prove that this rando could require you to justify your existence at any moment she chooses. Is this your job, you ask? You seriously have nothing better to do. I'm gonna count to five, she says. Then what, you'll nag me to death? The woman teeters, clutching for pearls that aren't there. And without thinking, or perhaps thinking with the sun-licked part of your brain, you say, eat a dick. The woman staggers, her decorum ablating like microwave styrofoam. As she crumbles, you recognize that you have made an error for which there is no reset button. She screams, Jerome! It's blood curdling. A wave of faces shifts your way. Act natural, you think. Tuck your head, lift your phone, and commence scrolling. King Ties arrive in time for Noche Buena, a, a Miami New Times article announces. Break out the kayaks and get your cars to high ground. Jerome, she cries again. You're unsure if she is beckoning someone named Jerome or if she thinks that all black guys are named Jerome and she's addressing you directly. Perhaps urban legend among a certain demographic has it that yelling Jerome five times will make a black man vanish, the reverse of repeating Candyman. Soon enough, the answer reveals itself. The sea of spectators parts for an entity with the speed and size of a silverback gorilla. You feel yourself plucked from the chase by a force so powerful you can hardly tell what body part you've been lifted by. Perhaps you've been swept into its gravitational pull. Your phone plummets to the ground. The screen detonates into a web of shards. And I'll stop the excerpt there. Hi. Oh. Um. Okay. So it. So we're going. 
I'm going to try to think about the conversation without spoilers. So if you haven't picked up the book, I hope you'll consider picking it up today at City Lights. It reminds bookstores that events like this are a good idea. Um, and we're so grateful to be here today. Thank you to everybody who came. Um, so I feel like that, that um, passage was wonderful, Jonathan, because it leads directly into a question I often think about with your writing, which is humor, um, which you do so well. Um, like I, this book is full of laugh out loud moments, um, but I feel like part of what makes them so brilliant um, is that they are they're laced into the very fabric of the book. So even in moments that feel really charged, like the one you just read, um, the humor just bubbles up between the lines. And I'm wondering, as a, as a writer who, who wants to learn from this, and as a reader, if those are things that sort of happen organically as you're writing, or whether it's something that you think about sort of intentionally working into certain parts of the narrative. I think it. I think it happens or, organically to begin with, but um, you know, when you're you're writing a, a full book, whether it's you know, it's um, my book is a link story collection in a sense. Like if you if you look at the cup the the cover, it doesn't say like stories or it doesn't say a novel, and I think that's because a lot of like a lot of reviewers have been calling it a novel even though they've read the whole thing and it's clear that you know they, they've formed their own opinion um I, I think when you spend so much time writing you know close to 300 pages or, or more uh you you have to find ways to keep your yourself entertained i think and there's ways in which a lot of these like absurd moments of um uh, my my main character Trelawney trying to figure out how to deal with like bef even before racism comes into play it's like how do you deal with race in general how do you um, I, like identify yourself and how do you find yourself feeling comfortable in your own body and when people have certain expectations for how a body like yours is supposed to move through the world and um, I don't know I, I think maybe some of that is just uh, myself trying to uh, find ways that are like entertaining into those those deeper harder questions but um, at the same time I think I revise for humor maybe more than I'm not like uh, like acknowledging that I write for humor I think some things come out more natural and then I might come back and say oh like I thought that was funny I thought it was what I thought it was what it was, and then I thought it was funny, and then I look back at it, and I thought it was corny, and, and then I go back, and it's like I need to take that out, and then you know maybe this is something that'll be more imp impactful, and, and and I think that's when I start to actually like use my uh, my my more conscious brain on it, like thinking about how how it all works and how it all fits together, but uh, so I guess it's a mix of both, maybe. Um. Another question I have, which is again, the it's the counterbalance or the what am I thinking of? Um, the ways in which this feels like a very organic, like the the collection as a whole feels like a very like sort of organically structured book. But as writers, we know right that there's always this behind the scenes, like little construction site where we're figuring things out. And so I'm wondering how you came to this particular structure for the collection like what is the what is the first story you wrote and like chronological like what is the oldest story in the collection and how did you sort of make your way towards the if i survive you yeah. final story yeah 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 uh i i think every i, I was I wound up on a panel um at awp the conference last year where i i I only bring that up to say like I'm stealing this from somebody else who was on that panel who organized it and was talking about link story collections. And this is Kara uh, uh, Blue Adams, who, you know, I see nods, uh, heads, sorry, I see heads nodding, and so some of you know um, who this writer is, but she used the analogy of a constellation of stories coming together, and I feel like whenever I write a story having to do with these particular characters in this family 
uh, I can see, every time I write a new story, I can see the last story that I wrote a lot clearer and all the stories that came before a lot clearer. And so I'm able to start to carve those out and, car and, and create this world in a, in a more clear way, in a sense. The, the oldest story was independent living a story that didn't initially start off as part of this collection or this family. I remember actually taking it to an undergrad class. Um, I remember actually writing it as an essay, just to be honest, because I was working at a um, uh, government subsidized elderly housing community. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because I'll, I'll be um, doing interviews or podcasts and people will say like, what, you know, like, like what a fucked up um, job that is, and it's so morally this and that, and it's like yeah, and I, and that job exists, and I had that job, and you know, to follow the letter of the law, I had to do fucked up things to elderly pe people. That was my job was to fuck over elderly people, and um, and so that's what my my characters are like concerned with. It's like how do you be good in this world and succeed? And you know, sometimes you're choosing between your morals and whether or not you've got a meal, you know, for the for set up for the next week. But I think I knew I had a book when I wrote Influx, which is the story that opens the book, and um, it, it kind of gave direction to the book in a sense, where I, I really started to understand who my protagonist was and how he was dealing with questions of identity and um, dealing with his family and figuring out. Um, you know those questions of, of how you exist in the in the world. I think the, the the story that I read from is the story that closes out the book. It's the title story, and it's the story that I wrote. The the it, it was the last story that I wrote in a sense, but it clarified so much about everything that I had written before. So I really had to go back and and revise. Um, I mean, I didn't have to do anything, but it made sense for me to, for, for the book to make sense for me to go back and revise and make it all fit together. And I wanted to, I wanted to close out a lot of the earlier um, threads in a sense after I'd written that book, or sorry, written that story. Uh, and I, you know, a lot of things happened in between that where I don't, I don't necessarily even remember like the order of what came between that. But there were a lot of stories that were supposed to be in the book that got kind of pulled out um, because they were doing redundant work, and maybe I went with the story that actually, you know, it, it covered the same subject matter, but it actually wound up being, you know, a better story. And you know, and that's painful to pull out stories that you you really thought, you know like this could work and maybe some of those stories could work but you make decisions you you, you cut things and you uh, i feel like for for the writers out there you know out here <laughs> for the writers literally sitting in front of me like perception is, is reality in a sense so you go with what is going to um feel good in a sense because oftentimes you'll never really know like what the right thing was to do in the first place other than that like what because, you know, it's like any regrets I have in terms of, like, decisions I made with my larger writing career or the book, it's it's all very personal to me, and it would it would make no sense to most people if I actually, you know, listed those things. So thinking about the, the broader structure of the book, um, I think one of the things I noticed was the, the devastation of natural disasters and these hurricanes that have these, like, seismic um, effects on the lives of Trelawney and Delano. Um, and, and it's almost like each time a hurricane hits in, what, in this collection, there's a before and an after. And it's, it's unbridgeable, the chasm between these two things. And you, I don't know if this was intentional, but it's almost, I mean, I assume that it was because you're brilliant. There was like a three act structure created by these hurricanes. And I wonder what um, inspired you to make these natural disasters. Um, I, should, I should clear. I should go back. Nat um, Hurricane Andrew basically creates the schism between uh, Act One and Act Two, and then the arrival of Hurricane Irene basically creates Act Three. Uh, and it's such a, like an elegant structure because these natural disasters are working in sort of counterbalance with the actions of the characters. Um, who are like desperately trying to stay afloat and figure out how to move forward. And I, I wonder sort of how you landed on that design 
decision, I guess, or in drafting, that just happened naturally for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally meant for there to be a three-act structure that was <laughs> divvied up by hurricanes, and thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the first time anyone's ever uh, really? pointed that out. No, yeah, really, really. Um, but do you see it? I think I do see it, and I, what 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 has occurred to me though is that so there's this relationship between um, these two brothers. I was reading from Trelawney's uh, point of view, and he's trying to, in a sense, best his brother because his brother has always been the family favorite, and even when the brother is falling down on his responsibilities and kind of causing uh, these really big problems in the family, these big problems for the father character, the father still favors the older brother. And um, the thing that I, I was kind of more aware of is that what happens in the wake of that first hurricane, Hurricane Andrew, which hit South Florida in 1992, is the hurricane that I lived through and, and have my you know, various traumas from. And, and it was very much a marker, like a divide in, in my life of before and after. But what happens is that because Topper is a contractor, he as much as he suffers a personal loss of his, his house being destroyed, he's able to build a business around that because in that time there was a lot of money being handed out by, by FEMA and, the, and people had to um, rebuild houses one way or another in South Florida. And so he's able to actually finally like really build himself up as a result of this. Now his um, older son, Delano is like protege who tries to build his own, he, he also tries to build his own business as a um, arborist who has a tree service and he's trying to basically resurrect this business after the 2008 recession and he, Hurricane Irene was a real hurricane that was heading towards South Florida that wound up kind of turning and mostly not um, affecting South Florida while it affected other parts of the U.S. And, but he, he basically was trying to follow in his, his father's footsteps, basically, and use a hurricane to rebuild a business. And um, that's kind of how I was more thinking of it in terms of how those two characters came trying to fall and step with one another um, and appreciate one another while Trelawney is it's continually on the outs, in a sense, as the person who pursued um, traditional education, which isn't necessarily that valued in, in, in this family. Because uh, it's, you know, it's he wants to be a writer and that's just kind of, I don't know. I, I don't, I just don't know that many people in Miami who like respect, respect uh, that. Uh, <laughs> so this is like my, this is the author's personal word, worldview being played out on the page basically. Um, but I'm gonna like move forward saying that I totally mapped that out. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> um, what was the most fun part of writing this book? I know how big of a question that is because a book takes years and years to write, but what was it? <laughs> for those of us who are, who are writing books, what can we look forward to? I think the, the funnest part was when I would write a story and it would be like kind of okay. And I might even submit it to like a magazine or something and I'd be like, yeah, this was a solid story. This is like an okay story, you know? And then I'd get rejected by a bunch of places. And then, uh, you know, I'd be salty, I'd be mad. I'd be like, oh, the Paris Review, fuck you guys. <laughs> you know, fuck you. You don't understand, you know. Um, and then it would always kind of dawn on me, like, oh, but, like, what if you made this story, like, good, though? <laughs> you know, like, what if you made this story, like, really great? Because you, you know, you're, like, I don't know, I, this is a, it's going to be a, both nerdy and outdated, which is, like, the worst kind of reference you can make, but it's, it's like a... Like you're Neo in the Matrix, like you can you can do anything. You are God on the page, and um, it, it it's funny like knowing that one time wouldn't necessarily I, I wouldn't necessarily go into the next story understanding that, but that but it would always kind of come to me like oh like don't just 
do like an okay mediocre story like do like anything like do the shit that's gonna like excite you and suddenly you're you know you feel the hairs on your arm standing up and you're like oh like i'm gonna take it to the next level i'm just gonna do this wild shit and um and sometimes it's gonna be like i was representing the world as i understand other people to understand it and then be like you know fuck that i'm gonna do it like i understand it and it would be like oh shit like this is totally different and that was that was just a lot of fun just to realize that i can do anything on the page and you know you some of that is stepping away from expectations of what you think publishing might want and like i can't i can't complain about bigger publishing because pub, bigger publishing accepted my shit like pretty pretty open arms you know <laughs> um but there's a lot of like how we can hold ourselves back saying, oh, I can't do that because bigger publishing is not going to accept that thing, right? And um, I don't know, I, I possibly just got lucky uh, with timing and all, and all of that. But at the same time, it was like when I, when I stopped worrying about what other people were going to think about a given story, and it's like, well, yeah, what would... You know what would people in my old neighborhood say like would they say like this is the realest shit or that was the realest shit and like going with the realest stuff i i could possibly say is like you know if just people back home who were being honest about themselves if they were willing to take a look at like you know their flaws or their uh desires like what would they actually say like no this is the real this is the real stuff and and taking it in that direction without worrying because I, you know, it took like ten years to write the book, and so, you know, being like fake, like it wasn't getting me anywhere anyway. You know what I mean? Like, so I might as well be real, and at least even if it didn't get published, it would have been like, well, at least I wrote for the benefit of myself and expressing like what I actually saw the world to be versus trying to mimic what other people present the world to be. That's great. It's a great, and I, I see that daringness in your work that like fearlessness of like, what can the short story form do? What could, like how far can we take it? Um, it's really exciting to read. Um, by the way, this is like an intimate conversation. If you have any questions, like raise your hand and I will come over to you. Um, but one thing, I'm, one thing I'm curious about is how, how you think about, um, well, okay, what are you working on now? Are you working on more short stories or are you working on a novel? I'm under contract for a novel. Um, I'm kind of working on the novel. <laughs> <laughs> I keep working on stories, but like, uh, I have to admit like I'm kind of bitter about, here's the thing like, and, and, and work with me a little bit <laughs> go go with me on this journey just a little bit I, I i can't really write from a place of um like when things are going well for me like in my career and in my life ah it fucks up my writing so so much you know every every time i get you know a good my like good news from my publicist usually it's like oh fuck you like i can't i can't write for the day and now i have to share good news on twitter ruins my entire day it really does honestly and so any bit of like like either bad news or the lack of good news i really like to take that and internalize it and be bitter and like that's like the engine of my writing is just like because i have to see myself as an underdog i know it's a terrible thing you know this like you'll see these billionaires talking about themselves as as underdogs and it's like fuck that guy right always but I, I like I, I understand in in the smallest way like you ha you can't really see yourself as like oh everything goes easy for me you know um, and so I I'm trying to uh, embrace the fact that I hate the fact that short short story collections get they like they still kind of get shitted on even when they get bought and sold and all of that they they still get shitted on like that's my new that's my new um, soapbox material right now is that. Because everyone's like, oh, you know, don't, like, it did, like, it's doing, it's doing pretty cool for a story collection. 
you know, and it's like, oh, you should be super proud, like I got this thing for a story collection, you know, and it's like, you are clearly shitting on the fact that I wrote a story collection, and it's it's linked stories, and again, it's, it's like, half the publishers who wanted to publish this were like, this is a novel, and we're going to publish it if you go with us as a novel, and I was like, nah, fuck that, like, I'm, I really believe in stories, I went with my, I chose my agent because she believed in stories, this whole thing has been full steam ahead as as stories. Like the belief is there, but but I'm also kind of sitting here like, damn, like you guys, like like I'm still getting points deducted because it's a story collection. It's still kind of like, like you wrote a good book, you wrote a great book maybe even for stories, you know. Like you didn't write you didn't write a great novel, you know what I mean? Like because had you written a great novel, you would have done like the top thing. But you wrote a great story collection. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck all of you, you know? Like, for real? Like, for real? Like, and then there's like, oh, you'll get them next time with the novel, you know? And it's like, really? You'll get them next time? I'm in my 40s. Like, I might. I signed a contract for another one. Like, I should write a novel. But I, I may not live to, to, to finish that no I may not. Like, yeah, I got a lot of friends who never made it to the 40s. So. So that's, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> but I still like, I still stand behind my answer. I still stand behind it's my amazing, answer. <laughs> regardless of the question. Thank you. Amazing. Um, do you have a question? Yeah, I mean, so there's one, there's one, I think I won't, there's one that's like the, in the middle of the, this book that um, I kind of, I kind of want to write it as a novel, I don't know if I'm really allowed to do that, um, to rewrite it as a novel and still like put that out, and maybe things will happen differently, but absolutely, and then there's another story that I, I, I like I was kind of writing. I mean, I, I I pulled all kinds of stories that I wrote for this book out of this collection, and there was one that I I really thought was going to be in the collection, and it just kept. I realized the scope was much bigger, and it's more of a novel in it in itself, and it's and it's you know it's a it is a character who appears in the in the in the book, um, but I'm I'm hoping to just publish another novel about her so yeah i mean not another novel another book about her that'll get more points because it's a novel <laughs> um so one question that came up for me as i was reading because you play so much with point of view is um something that i i get asked i think a lot of writers get asked fairly frequently which is this, this idea of who you're writing for and I get kind of frustrated with that question because I feel like if you're writing sort of generously and from a place of like openness, you're really writing for anyone who's willing to meet you in the world of a book, right? Um, but as I was reading, you know, a lot of your writing has this like uh, second person, has a you in it, in, in this book. And we do find out no spoilers, we do find out a little bit about what the U means and what its import is for the whole collection, but I'm wondering about you, like you the writer, like you Jonathan Escoffrey, when you write, like what reader are you picturing? So who are you writing to? Yeah, I, I mean I write, I write for my, myself first, but that doesn't mean like I revise for myself necessarily. I write, I revise with a lot of different lenses kind of placed over that. But you have to write for yourself first, I find, you know, like you, only you find, or only you can guarantee that what you find funny is funny, and only you can guarantee that what you find important is, is, is important to you. Um, I've gotten, I've, I'm at the point, you know, with this being the, I guess, one month anniversary or I'm, I'm starting to get uh, like e emails or more likely social media DMs from uh, Caribbean, <laughs> Caribbean American, like, like Jamaican Americans or like Jamaicans in Miami writing me saying like, oh shit, I've never seen myself on the page before. And you know, that feels really 
really great. And I, I gave like Jamaicans in the diaspora a special shout out in my acknowledgments just because it's like, yeah, like I'm doing this for us in this way. At the same time, it's like, you know, I'll go home to Miami or talk to like Jamaicans otherwise and, and they'll <laughs> they'll put on that kind of like judgmental Jamaican voice that they that you know that my parents some like kind of can put on and and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, in a way I you know, I, there's ways in which I'm, 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 I, I was writing against like any one solid, I, I guess writing against the idea even of one solid identity, or that even like any of us can have one solid identity that doesn't fluctuate throughout time or given a certain context or given a certain experience. So I, I tend to like to think of like anyone who bucks against the rigid boxes that we're all given in terms of like how we're supposed to identify and, and what that's supposed to mean to us and um, people who are a little bit suspicious of the world that we've inherited, like those tend to be like, because I, I think, I don't know, I, I, I think I write for the outcast reader in a sense, like more than I write for any one given identity, but you know, it works both ways. So, like, when I get those messages, it's like, oh, shit, yeah, I'm, I'm super glad that I could have created these characters that you see yourself in for the first time, and at the same time, it's like... And, 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 and that's a period on that. But, you know, I also understand when other people are like, oh, shit, like, I see, I see, you know, I see the Matrix. I see how we're all trying to be tricked into thinking that... You know, it's it's very simple. The world is black and white, and we should be on one side of the line or the other. Um, and uh, you know, anyone who appreciates that, I, I I write for those people too. Beautifully said. Um, I haven't talked to Jonathan about this book because I was waiting for to do it here, and like literally in my cell phone notes, and there's like post-its in my arc. I had it like just written down over and over to like thank you for writing the whole collection, but in flux particularly. Because as another Caribbean diaspora kid, I grew up just being like, okay, so I'm either black or white, but like, it's so confusing because my parents don't know the answer. And like, what do we know, right? Um, and this this weird, this very unique and weird experience of being sort of pigeonholed, but not understanding the pigeonholes, like not being a pigeon, I don't know, but um, <laughs> the metaphor is, fun um but, but yeah i wanted to i wanted to thank you specifically for that and for the way that you write race throughout this collection in this very unflinching and um sort of brilliant uh nuanced way because it's true i mean the 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 binaries are like what do we do with them right like they're, they're useless to us um so i remember like as I was reading this collection thinking like literally my I could pull it out but it's full of post-its that are just like thank you Jonathan thank you thank you well, thank you <laughs> my Trelawney he, he takes a so he's told as a child um, from his mom his parents are Jamaican I don't know I probably should have said that early on this is just Jamaican slash Jamaican American family and Trelawney's asked a lot um, like the question what are you how do you are you black what is going on like why do you look like that and he asked his family, um, he asked his parents, and his mom's like, well, when they ask, say, you're a little of this and you're a little of that. And he, he finds the answer, like, no, one, no one's going to, you know, obviously no one's going to accept that answer. Um, and he winds up taking a, a DNA test, and, you know, there, I mean, in one way it's kind of funny to put that into a story or into a book because a lot of people are like, DNA tests are bullshit in the first place and it's junk science, but... Whatever. Let's, if we were to believe that it's it's accurate science, he he gets the data, and I won't say like what the results are, but he finally has you know what could be scientific uh, data on on his racial makeup because he's this like multi generationally multi racial person, and what he finds is like knowing those things like makes absolutely no difference to how people are going to continue to approach him and say like but what are you though and 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 so that's like part of the project of this book is just um you know he he's got it he, he can he can choose he can say well i or i shouldn't say he can choose 
I, I'm, this book is not trying to dispute the fact that America still operates with this kind of one-drop rule <laughs> of blackness. So my character's black, like, um, and, and, he, and he identifies as black, at, at, you know, uh, by a certain point in the book. But in terms of like how that makes sense and how people keep still saying, like, you're kind of black with an asterisk, like, and we're still gonna pick you apart in all these different ways. I, I think. Um, you know the DNA test is, is is not super helpful to that, and he is still having to, I guess, move forward with, you know, uh, a kind of hopefully a kind of confidence that, um, regardless of what people are asking him, he 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 knows who he is. I think the questions kind of uh, evolve into, well, just what kind of man am I going to be? What kind of human am I going to be? Am I going to be? good in the world? Am I going to take advantage of others f for my own gain? Um, and that's a big question for him uh, moving forward. <laughs> if that makes sense. It does. Um, does anyone have questions? Because um, we're sort of, we're at the five minutes to go mark, so. Um, well, I always, I always have more questions to ask Jonathan, but I, I think, I don't know, we, we are Stegner fellows at Stanford, so I see him every week and bombard him often with questions about his writing. So I don't want to hog all of the, all of the Jonathan time. But I will say, if like the Publishers Weekly, Kirkus Reviews, um, National Book Award Longlist, New York Times Rave, New Yorker Rave, like didn't convince you, I hope that I can convince you <laughs> as, as an authority on books. Um, no, I, hope, I hope that you'll pick up the book today from City Lights and get it signed. We will be here hanging out. Um, like, let's, let's keep the conversation going, yeah? And also, this place is here and it has drinks. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming. I will I will give the last words to Jonathan. Yeah, uh, thank you all for coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to, to say. If you have secret questions, <laughs> you can uh, you can you can ask me, um, you know, now that this officially is ending as a as an event. Um, but thanks for coming for us. <laughs>